ask most people to describe divisions in the Muslim world today, and they'll probably say it's divided between Sunni and Shia. But if you further ask what that means, you might not get an answer. Well, that's what we want to talk about today, so stay tuned. Hello, and welcome back to episode four. Today we're going to talk about what I think is one of the most misunderstood and misrepresented concepts in all of Islam, and that is the split between the Sunni and the Shia. Now this is an issue that has great importance in our world today. You know, we hear talk about a power struggle in the Middle East between a Sunni bloc led by Saudi Arabia and a Shiite bloc led by Iran. We talk about proxy wars between them, between Sunni and Shia in Yemen, in Iraq, in Syria, and others. But this is one area, I think, where even very respectable books on Islam give explanations of this split that are just not very useful. It's not to say that they have incorrect facts. Their names and dates are correct. But they focus on the events that led up to the split, not the underlying philosophical differences between the two parties, and definitely not on the effects of that split in the world today. So I think this is an episode you're going to want to stay tuned for. We'll be back in just a second. Okay, well, we've promised you a lot in this episode, so it's about time we start delivering. If you look up the Sunni-Shia split in almost any textbook, you're going to be told that the Shia are people who believe that the Caliphate should have passed to the family of Ali ibn Abi Talib, who, if you remember, was the son-in-law of the Prophet, while Sunnis believe that the Caliph should be selected by the community of believers. It's amazing how many people who are really interested in events in the Islamic world and who know a lot about what's going on there accept this explanation as sufficient. Well, let's think about it for just a second. Saudi Arabia and Iran are correctly seen as competitors in a major power struggle in the Middle East. And they both do sponsor sectarian proxies that are in direct conflict. But neither country has a caliph, nor has any intention of establishing a caliph. And in fact, the only group to try and establish a caliphate recently was the terrorist group ISIS, and both Saudi Arabia and Iran fought against them. So are we to believe that Saudi Arabia and Iran are fighting today about whether Ali should have been given the caliphate? Is that what the civil war in Yemen is all about? We witnessed large Shiite uprisings in Bahrain, for example, in 2011 that were put down pretty violently. I mean, they weren't demanding a formal apology to the family of Ali. So obviously there is something more here. And it's not that those events didn't start a split, but it's what that really means which is important. Such a thing might not matter a whole lot, except that this divide is really of great interest for political and security reasons today. Think about after the invasion of Iraq in 2003, the US military found itself caught in a sectarian war that it didn't really understand and scrambled to get a grasp on it. They hired a lot of experts to try and figure this out. I can remember being at one conference where a film production company was given a lot of money to develop a training film for soldiers kind of think of Walt Disney and the stuff he did during World War II. This was for soldiers deploying to Iraq to understand the situation there. And it's one of those films where you have these obvious actors dressed up in military gear, pretending to be soldiers not very well. Anyway, there's one point where the supposed sergeant is inspecting his troops, checking their rifles and so on, and quizzing them on important knowledge. And he quizzes a nervous young private. He asks him, soldier, What's the difference between Sunni and Shia? And the private bumbles and fumbles and can't answer. And the sergeant chews him out, tells him he needs to learn this. Then he moves to the next, you know, highly polished soldier who spouts off in a Hollywood style. Sergeant, the Shia believe that the caliph should be appointed from the family of Ali, to which the sergeant commends him and reminds the troops that this knowledge is important as knowing how to take apart a rifle. Well, 
Thankfully, I didn't have to be the one to say anything because another professor stood up and said that really what was much more important was what those things meant to people today, which is really the point we want to get to. Or another analogy. Imagine if a thousand years from now, someone were trying to understand communism, and they were told that communists were those people that believed that the leader of Russia should be someone named Vladimir, and the royalists were those who believed it should be someone named Alex. Well, you'd have a really hard time figuring out the rest of the 20th century based on that. Now, the point that Vladimir was Lenin, and Alex was the Tsar Alexander, and they had very different ideas on how society should be run, might get you a little bit further. And that's the point here. Yes, this split does begin with a dispute over whether Ali should have been selected as the Khalif. But really, the idea of political and religious leadership that Ali's followers had, in which they wanted to see, was very different from that held by the people who eventually chose Abu Bakr. The nature of legitimacy and authority, both religious and political, and the nature of what the community of Muslims meant, was going to develop in very different ways amongst the Shia and amongst those who would become the Sunnis. And those differences are very much evident in the governing philosophies of a nation like Saudi Arabia versus that of a Shiite state like Iran. Once again, it's focusing on the big picture. And that's where we want to go in just a second. Having said all that, we do want to look at the events that led to this split between the Sunni and Shia. And as we mentioned in a previous episode, those terms really don't come into use until about 940 AD. And that's when Shia doctrine is put down in writing. But it's really awkward to use terms like proto-Sunni and proto-Shia. And so just understand that what we're talking about are the communities that will evolve into the Sunni and Shia. A key figure in this whole story is Ali ibn Abi Talib, the cousin and the son-in-law of the Prophet Muhammad. And as we discussed last time, he was basically an adopted brother of the Prophet and later became an adopted son of the Prophet. So he was really the closest male relative that the Prophet Muhammad had. But probably more importantly than any of that, he was the father of the two grandsons of the Prophet who survived into adulthood because, of course, infant mortality was very high uh, in that environment. Beyond this, Ali was personally known for his piety, his spirituality, his devotion, his religious qualities, he is probably the most revered character after the Prophet, really among Sunnis and Shia. Now, as you remember, the person who was actually chosen Caliph was not Ali, but was Abu Bakr, the father-in-law of the Prophet, who was a respected elder and who was acceptable to the largest number of the tribes. You remember the negotiating process we talked about where he was eventually chosen as the one to hold the community together. Well, before we go any further, let's look at the nature of these two claims on the leadership, because we've really got a split right there. And it's not a split between son-in-law and father-in-law, but it's the nature of this power, of this right that they have. Both of their claims do have roots in Arab culture. Ali's claim is one of inheritance, and like in most cultures, sons inherit from their fathers. The Prophet did not have a male heir, but Ali, and particularly Ali's children, were the closest to male heirs that he had. So sons normally inherited the property, the assets, the name, the reputation of their family. And so that lineage passed from father to son based on blood, based on who you were. And that is Ali's claim. Abu Bakr was chosen the way that a tribal leader was chosen. Remember, that was in the form of a tribal council. And that type of leader was selected based on his competence, his performance, the confidence that the tribe had in his leadership. Now, the difference here is very important because it tells us not only why they were chosen, but what sort of rights they had and what the expectations were. 
Abu Bakr acted like a good tribal leader. Uh, he made it very clear he had no spiritual powers, no mystical connection to God and prophet. He didn't receive messages. He had no healing powers or anything like that. His claim was knowledge, skill, and character. And as the closest companion to the prophet, he was seen as the one who, who knew the prophet's mind the best. Now, this would characterize Sunni leaders to this day. Their qualities are natural. They're based on character. They're based on accomplishment. They're based on developed skills. They're not mystical in any sort of way. Ali's supporters, by contrast, they valued inheritance, bloodline. Uh, they didn't have a concept of DNA at the time, but this would have fit very well. Yeah, there was something in Ali, and particularly in Ali's children, through the bloodline of the prophet, that was special, that set them apart. Uh, they wanted to give the leadership to future great-great-great-grandchildren that had not been born, having confidence in them because of their blood, what they would be born with. Now, they believed there was something special passed along here. And this was really further supported by Ali's nature. When you looked at him, he was a very spiritual guy. And really, it's hard to sort out the, the legends and the traditions about Ali because many of the things that are reported about him, we would have to classify these as, as miracles because they're really supernatural in nature. But that's the kind of guy Ali was. Uh, and even in the Sunni traditions, he is a scribe with physical and spiritual acts that clearly set him apart from the pack. So you can see what we're getting at. We're, we're talking about two different types of legitimacy. Well, Abu Bakr made it very clear that prophethood ended with Muhammad. With Ali's followers, it's not so clear. I have to say, in fairness, most sects of Shia do not consider Ali to be another prophet. But he is seen as a divinely appointed successor. He's not just chosen by people because he's good. Now, there are some sects, particularly the Alawites, which is the ruling group in Syria, that consider Ali to be divine. The rest of the Shiites do not accept that idea. But among the largest sect of Shiism today, the call to prayer, which you hear five times a day, comes over loudspeakers, over the televisions, over the radios in Muslim countries, very important, is different than the Sunni version. In the Sunni version, it begins with, God is great. I testify there is no God but God. I testify that Muhammad is the messenger of God. This is the Shahada, the Muslim profession of faith, and, and so far it's the same. But the Shia version adds two lines to this. One is about doing good deeds, but the second is a line that says that Ali is the Wali of God. Now, you may sometimes see Wali translated as friend of God, but that's really not a correct translation. Usually it is translated correctly as viceroy or governor. Uh, a Wali is like a governor who is appointed by a sovereign, by a monarch. It comes from the same root as we get the word for state. In fact, that's what a state is. It's what a, a Wali rules over. Now, think about this. Essentially, they are saying in their call to prayer, up there with stating that there's only one God, that Muhammad is the prophet of God, and then that Ali is the divinely appointed ruler on earth, God's deputy on earth. Now you can see this gives Ali a very different status than someone like Abu Bakr, who, who would have rejected such a title flat out. We told you that last time Ali did eventually become the caliph. He was the fourth caliph, in fact. But even this was fundamentally different than what his followers wanted. Remember, in that situation, he was selected, the same way Abu Bakr, Omar, and Uthman had been selected. And, presumably, he would have been replaced by another elected leader upon his death. They were not saying he was a divinely appointed viceroy who would pass on the leadership through his bloodline. So we can see the split beginning there, and even the selection of Ali doesn't really heal it because it hasn't really changed the nature of the caliphate. But yet, even with that, Ali's reign as caliph was going to be very contested and very unstable, as we'll see in just a minute. Well, despite all that's happened, the real Sunni-Shia split was still to come. We're going to look at how that came about. 
But again, don't get wrapped up in all the details, which tend to get quite convoluted in this story. Even this simplified version that we're going to go over is going to leave out a lot of details. But the big picture we want to focus here on is how two distinct visions of Islamic rule emerge from these two different communities. So to get back to the story, as we mentioned last time, the third caliph, Uthman, was a member of the powerful Umayyad clan, and he was assassinated by rebels from Egypt. Ali was selected to take his place, but Uthman's relatives, the Umayyads, still wanted justice for his killing, as you can imagine. Well, there's a tension here on how Ali is going to react to this. It's really the new Islamic system of government and law that's on trial. In Arab tradition, the tribe was responsible for avenging their dead, and it was a big part of tribal honor. Well, Uthman was a member of the strongest tribe, so in pre-Islamic times, his Umayyad relatives definitely would have gone after his killers and taken vengeance. But remember, Muhammad has established a new community here, based not on tribe and vengeance, but on faith and Islamic law. So that system, with Ali in charge, is now really on trial to see if it can provide justice in place of and superseding the kind of wilderness justice that was used by the Bedouin. The leader of the Umayyads at this time was a man named Muawiyah, about whom we're going to talk a lot. And he was also serving as the governor of Syria, which was really the most important and powerful part of the empire. So Muawiyah is really a double challenge to Ali's legitimacy. On the one hand, he's a strong political military leader in a very unstable state that Ali is trying to establish control over. But he's also the member of a powerful clan, which is seeking justice. Well, a clever political operator like Umar or Abu Bakr probably could have turned this situation to their advantage. But Ali is regarded for his uncompromising purity, his spiritual vision, and his religious ethics, not for his political maneuvering. And this again fits into a claim I made earlier on that an Islamic community led by Ali from the beginning probably would never have turned into an empire. As we mentioned last time, Uthman had put his Umayyad relatives in positions of power, and Muawiyah was the chief among these. Ali, upon assuming the caliphate, felt that it was his duty to clean up the corruption and the nepotism that had crept into the Muslim state and to set the empire back on the right course. Big part of that meant removing all these Umayyad officials that Uthman had put into place and replacing them with people he felt were of impeccable character. That was a very sincere and well-intentioned act, but it was also very bad politics and bad timing. Remember, we still have Muawiyah with the big army up in Syria, demanding justice for his murdered kinsmen, and suddenly he's fired, and he's still up there with his supporters, and all his relatives and allies are fired as well. Needless to say, Muawiyah did not comply with the order to stand down. But the murder of Uthman gave him an excuse to take arms against Ali. It's long been suspected that Muawiyah wanted power for himself and his Umayyad clan. He wanted to secure their hold on leadership. But by Ali not taking justice in the death of Uthman, this gave Muawiyah a justification to rebel. Now, Muawiyah is said to have waved Uthman's bloody shirt to motivate his followers to go into battle. And so the phrase Uthman's shirt today is used to mean a justification or an excuse that you use for something you want to do to pursue your own goals. Well, Muawiyah stirred up a lot of support and a lot of dissent against Ali. And so Medina became too hostile for Ali. He moved his followers to the newly established Muslim town of Kufa in Iraq. Thus began what is called the First Muslim Civil War, or the First Fitna. And fitna means chaos or discord. Well, if you think about all the fighting we've had since the death of the Prophet, 
And now we're just entering something called the First Civil War. That gives you an idea of how big this conflict is about to get. The question is often asked, why didn't Ali just punish the killers of Uthman? Well, there's all kinds of writing out there, particularly from the Shiite side, trying to justify this. You'll find it all over the internet, providing evidence that Uthman was not a legitimate leader, that he didn't have the right to redress, and so forth. But the reality is that Ali never really had a firm grip on power, even from the beginning. There was dissent from the time he took over, and he was really trying to stitch together a coalition to hold this state together. And so he never really had the power and authority to take vengeance or to extract justice on these rebels. But in any case, that gave Muawiyah a justification to say that Ali and the state had failed them, and therefore Muawiyah had the right to take vengeance and really to establish his own kind of law. So this begins the battles of the Fitna. Well, these battles are full of contradictory reports, as you might imagine. The Shiite accounts have Ali on the verge of annihilating the Umayyads on multiple occasions, but instead showing mercy to them and, of course, being, being backstabbed by Muawiyah. In reality, that picture seems a little bit unlikely. Given the power base of the Umayyads, it seems like they probably had military superiority over Ali's forces throughout most of this. In any event, there was a major battle outside the city of Raqqa in Syria, and it was pretty indecisive and bloody. And so Ali and Muawiyah agreed to negotiation. They agreed to arbitration from tribal leaders in order to settle this dispute. Well, many historians believe, and there's a lot of evidence to support this, that Muawiyah set the whole thing up in order to outmaneuver Ali, who again was renowned for his piety, not for his shrewdness. Well, the negotiations didn't go well for Ali, and by the time it was over, the leaders who had gathered there had agreed to depose Ali as the caliph and to follow Muawiyah. Well, Ali rejected the results, saying that as God's chosen, he couldn't be forced into such an agreement. But by this time, Maui's strategy had really worked. He had gotten the bulk of the leaders to pledge allegiance to him and put Ali in the uncomfortable position of making himself look illegitimate, like someone who had been voted out of office but refused to go. And so it's often assumed that this is what Maui'o was after from the very beginning. Ironically, the most hardcore supporters of Ali also turned against him because they were disillusioned by the fact that he agreed to negotiation in the first place, which sounds a little bit odd, but we have to remember there are two different types of claims to leadership involved here. Muawiyah is again just claiming to be a competent leader, a skillful leader who has the support of the most people. Ali's followers claim that he has a divine appointment and that he has a divine gift as spiritual leader. Well, when he even sat down to agree to arbitration over leadership of the Islamic community, in the eyes of his most extreme and devoted followers, he had lost that legitimacy. So accordingly, and actually quite ironically, it would be one of Ali's supporters who assassinated him in the year 661 for negotiating with the enemy. This group that assassinated Ali, by the way, would be known as the Kharijites. And kharaj means to go out or to exit in Arabic. And this is essentially a group that ended up rejecting all types of leadership and exiting from the mainstream Muslim community. Uh, they would really become a major thorn in the side of all the Muslim governments for the centuries to come. Now, eventually they settled down and evolved into the Ibadi sect, which is now in Oman. But that group really has none of the radical tendencies of their predecessors. However, the majority of Ali's followers, still devoted to him, continued to believe in him and his special mission, but they realized that he was never going to come to power. They could hope that that would happen through his sons. These are the people what we would eventually call the Shia. Shia means partisans or party, and it's short for Shia Ali, the party of Ali, the followers of Ali. Those who followed Muawiyah's lead would eventually be named the Sunnis, 
Now remember the idea of Sunni meaning to follow the example or the Sunnah of the Prophet through study and effort rather than having any divine gift. So that split had occurred at this point but what this means for Islam is what we really want to talk about next. So hold on. Okay, so let's look at the situation in 661 after the death of Ali. Ma'awiyah has essentially seized control of the empire. He's established himself as the caliph, and he has definitely cemented Umayyad leadership. In a remarkably short time, this Umayyad caliphate, as it will be called, will become the largest empire the world had seen up to that point in history. This is essentially the empire that conquers everything from Spain to the borders of China. So we have an idea of how this story is going to go. But what happens to Ali's faction? Well, they are out of power and will stay that way for over three centuries. But what this does is this allows the spiritual veneration of the leader of this community to really develop without limits. Because remember, we're not talking about a leader who's actually governing anything. So the term for a Shiite leader is an imam. In Sunni Islam, that term just refers to a prayer leader. And Ali is judged to be the first imam. We don't have a Shiite caliph because there's no caliphate for them to be in charge of. But this leader becomes really exclusively spiritual, the religious and spiritual leader of this community. And again, this imamate, the state of being an imam, is believed to pass along the line of Ali through his male heirs, specifically through his two sons, whom we're going to discuss in a while. So you can see we're establishing a very different vision of leadership, but now with the fact of the Shia really being out of power and really becoming a persecuted, almost underground group, the sort of special spiritual nature of this figure becomes even more important. And that is only going to grow more intense as we go along. Now, whenever you hear Shiism discussed, you often hear numbers used with it, like sevener and fiver, and these sound a lot better in Arabic than they do in English. The largest branch of Shia today is known as the Twelvers. What this refers to is the number of imams the sect believes there were. Remember, it passes through the line of Ali through his descendants, and so some sects believe there were seven, some go all the way down to twelve. But even in that, the branches along that tree are disputed because some imams had more than one son from whom it could be traced. So among Shia, exactly who is an imam and how many there were is disputed. That's not the important part. The important part is whoever they ascribe this to has a special type of authority that you just don't find in Sunni Islam. And in fact, in reality, a type of authority that someone like Muawiyah establishing his dynasty could not allow to be in Sunni Islam. Some scholars out there try to make an analogy to Catholicism and the spiritual authority that a pope has or a priest has. Now, while that's really a gross overgeneralization, you notice I did think it was worth mentioning here. There's something there. It's not a very clean analogy. Not to get too wrapped up in the technicalities, but you'll notice the numbers of imams I gave you, it's not very high. Five, seven, twelve, and that certainly doesn't get us up to the present day. So what happened? Well, Shia believed that the last imam did not die, but went into a state of what we call occultation. It essentially became hidden, went into a spiritual state, no longer in this world, but not dead. And so the last imam is known as the hidden imam. And the idea is that that imam still has a type of communication with his successors, with his followers on earth. Later Shiite leaders are not known as Imams, but they are Marja. And this is believed that someone has a special characteristic of leadership, but they're not at the level of Imam. But to some extent, they can communicate with this hidden Imam. There are 64 claimed to exist today. The rank we hear of Ayatollah, which means the sign of God from the Arabic Ayat Allah, uh, that's a step lower than this. You don't have to remember all those details if you like, but what to remember is even though we are now several steps removed 
from Ali and even from the Prophet Muhammad, there is still a type of communication or divine spiritual special appointment, which although it's not as strong as Ali had, it is connected in some way, which again, we don't find in Sunni. Sunni leaders are technical experts who have studied the scriptures, who have studied the Hadith. Even today, every Shiite is expected to have a marja that they follow. Now, as I said, there are many different ones, so they don't agree on who is the, the single marja. That allegiance is an essential part of the faith. Who is your marja? Who is your spiritual leader? Uh, different communities acknowledge different ones. The supreme guide in Iran, who is currently the Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, before him it was Ayatollah Khomeini, who was very famous for leading the Iranian Revolution, is one of these. But he is not acknowledged by Shia in other places, uh, for example, in Iraq. In Iraq, the most influential Shia spiritual guide is Ali Sistani, but there are several others. And just an interesting story about Ali Sistani, since I mentioned him, and I think this is very illustrative of his role. Uh, I know a U.S. Army colonel who still today receives Christmas cards from Ayatollah Sistani every year because they struck up a relationship during the Iraq War when this colonel was there. His unit was responsible for security in part of Baghdad that was heavily Shia, and he realized that it was Sistani, the Shiite Marja in that area, who was the key to popular support, I mean, really to winning over the hearts and minds of the people, not any elected leaders. So, being very smart that he was, uh, these two learned to work together. They learned that they needed each other. They worked together very well to help bring stability to that area. But note, at the same time, Iraq has an elected Shiite prime minister, who's the head of the government, um, since the fall of Saddam Hussein, they have had one. It's been different people. But the person with the real power over the people is this spiritual leader, the Marja. And in fact, in order to put together successful military operations, uh, for example, the fight against ISIS in Iraq, uh, we had Shiite militias, who of course are devoted to a Shiite spiritual leader, fighting in cooperation with regular Iraqi army units, and they were also fighting with Kurdish commandos as well. Let's compare that situation to the governing style on the Sunni side. Muawiyah had seized power by force, and even if we are to consider that he was, quote, selected, as Sunni doctrine states the leader should be, then he was clearly selected as leader for his political and military skill, which was quite, quite strong. And his descendants would prove to be very good at this. Remember, they're going to establish a huge empire. But Maoya was definitely not renowned for his piety or spiritualism. Now, in the Sunni view, he's not seen as being a bad guy or being impious, but that's just not what he's famous for. Of course, in the Shia view, he's seen as being totally evil. So the Sunni world really has a need to establish a difference between the political leader and the growing body of experts in Islamic law and theology, those who are performing a religious function. Part of this is because of the way that Muawiyah has come to the leadership. But he's following on a lead that was established by his predecessors, Abu Bakr and Omar, who made it clear that they didn't have spiritual authority or any sort of special spiritual gifts, but they were leaders of a community. So this fits in with Muawiyah's plan very well. But part of it is also practical. Remember, we're talking now about a very large empire, which is growing rapidly. And also, it's incorporating large numbers of people who are not Muslim to begin with, or who are converting to Islam and don't know a whole lot about it. And so we need a dedicated body of jurists, of scholars, of experts in Islamic law who are going to establish this system. And so we really have a division of labor here that begins with this large empire. I want to make very clear that we're not talking here about separation of church and state. This is very much an Islamic empire. Its goal is to spread Islam really throughout the world. 
But what we are talking about here is a necessary division of labor because of the size of this empire. So we have political leaders like Ma'awiyah, but also the governors under him, and then the rulers of various cities under them. We have the military leadership of what's growing to be a very large army. We have experts in economics, and we do have a growing body of of experts in Islamic law and in the religious rituals. And this is only going to continue to grow, this division. If we look at a modern Sunni state, we can get an example of this. And so let's consider the founding of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, which begins in the 18th century. Well, this kingdom was created by an alliance of a Bedouin chief, essentially a military leader, named Muhammad ibn Saud from whom the country, Saudi Arabia, is named, and a religious reformer known as Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. probably heard the term Wahhabi and Wahhabism used for the type of Sunni Islam practiced in Saudi Arabia, and that comes from his name. Again, I want to stress, Abdul Wahhab is a reformer, a preacher, and eventually becomes an advisor to this chief who becomes the king. He is not a visionary or a mystic. And in fact, he was very much against that sort of thing and people who claimed to be that. But this is an example where the relationship between these two powers, the political military power and the religious authority, really the religious expert, which is what uh, Abdul Wahhab is, uh, was very close and worked well together. And with it, they were able to form a state. And that relationship continues to this day. There is a, a strong but very defined relationship between the political leadership in Saudi Arabia and the religious establishment. And again, that establishment is based on scholarship. It's based on knowledge. Uh, for example, when one of the members of the opposition uh, spoke out against reforms that were enacted by the late uh, Saudi King Abdullah, he was brought in by the government, taken to a very large uh, religious legal library, and told to use the sources in that room to prove that the king was wrong, that he was violating Islamic law. Well, when he wasn't able to do it with the sources that were there, he was taken out and publicly beaten. But again, you see the idea here is not that it is the person of the king that has the authority to do that, or even the person of a Wahhabi leader who can declare you to be an infidel. It's based on the knowledge. We take you to a library, and you have to use the sources to prove your case. So in places where the Sunni-Shia conflict is going on, it's inevitably the nature of political rule that is in question, like the fighting that's hottest today in, in Yemen, for example, where Saudi Arabia and Emirati, both Sunni countries, are backing the president who is fighting against a tribal force of Shia, which is named after their spiritual leader, Hussein al-Houthi, is backed by Iran. Because it's the nature of political authority that both sides are seeking, which is the biggest threat. You can imagine in a system like what I've described in Saudi Arabia, which is based on a system of law and a body of knowledge that you can put into a library as its authority, having a spiritual leader who has almost a direct line to God, it's not direct, it's somewhat indirect, but who has a spiritual authority to make judgments can be a major threat to a regime like that if he gets enough popular backing. And so it's very much in the interest of a state like Saudi Arabia to ensure that someone like that doesn't. And so we want to talk a little bit about how this story continues in just a moment. So we hope you'll stay with us. All right, we promised earlier on to tell you what happened to the sons of Ali. And this is important because it forms probably the most important event in Shiite history. And it is one that is commemorated uh, every year throughout the Shiite world. So again, the names and the dates are going to get a little bit confusing. But what we want to really want to focus on is what happens between the Sunni side and the Shia side and how that affects popular memory to this day. As you remember, the Caliph Ali was assassinated in the year 661. 
And this, of course, led to a leadership crisis. Well, in what would become the Sunni world, Muawiyah had already become the leader, and so he becomes the caliph. He's not considered one of the four rightly guided caliphs. That era was over, but Muawiyah is going to establish his own dynasty, essentially, uh, the Umayyad dynasty. Now, in the Shiite view, uh, Ali's son Hassan, his oldest son, now becomes the imam of the Shiite community, uh, the rightful leader as they saw it. As you would imagine, a series of battles broke out between these two rival sides, and it only lasted about six months. Again, the reality of these battles will probably never actually be known because the records are, are heavily saturated with legends and skewed on both sides. But what we do know is it ended with a treaty between Hassan and Muawiyah, in which Hassan agreed to abdicate the leadership acknowledge Muawiyah as caliph, and he would retire to Medina. And so this does sort of tend to support the idea that the Umayyad side had won the battles. The rest of the terms of this oral treaty are not known, but the Shia claim that Muawiyah promised to make Hassan the caliph after him. Whether Muawiyah promised that or not, we don't know, but it really sounds like if it was, it was a promise that Muawiyah was not going to keep. What we do know, however, is that the Shia did not expect Muawiyah to appoint his own son, Yazid, as his successor, which is what he did. So from a, a Shiite point of view, this was seen as a clear violation of the treaty, and in fact it probably was. Just to clarify an important point here, Arab culture never had a tradition of primogeniture, which is something from Europe where the oldest son automatically becomes the ruler when the ruler dies. In truth, both today and back then, it often was the oldest son who got the job, but the idea was still that the king or caliph chose from his many children, and sometimes maybe from a nephew, based on their capability. Well, Yazid, the son of Muawiyah, was an accomplished military leader, a very skillful political operator like his father, and was clearly the favorite for the job. Now, Yazid was also a pretty shrewd and ruthless fellow, but it's fairly hard to believe that Muawiyah was ever going to pass on the leadership to Hassan. Now, even the proto-Sunni community was a little bit surprised by this because Muawiyah was now starting a trend. He was establishing a dynasty. But definitely from the Shiite side, this was seen as a complete violation of their agreement. Hassan had passed on, but his younger brother Hussein became, by virtue of his bloodline, the new Shia imam and the new Shia leader. This led to a conflict, obviously, between Yazid and Hussein. Now, if there are ever any two figures who are so surrounded by legend, uh, it's these two, and so it's very, very hard to get a clear picture of what they were really like. In the Shiite view, I mean, Yazid is the devil, uh, clearly. But we do get an idea that Yazid needed to suppress Hussein because he was a threat to his authority. So Yazid takes charge of this Muslim empire in the year 680 when his father Muawiyah died. Hussein refuses to acknowledge Yazid as the caliph, and this leads to a, an immediate conflict. Because of Yazid's power base, the city of Medina became too difficult for Hussein to remain in, and so he decided to take his forces and take refuge in the city of Kufa in Iraq, which if you remember that was Ali's power base. On the way there, Hussein's forces would be intercepted by Yazid's forces at a place called Karbala in Iraq, and this is a very famous name in the Shia world. Now, how the fighting between these forces started may never be resolved. The Sunnis claim that Yazid went there to protect Hussein, but some trigger-happy archer accidentally fired off an arrow, and this started a battle that they couldn't stop. Okay, that's a little bit hard to believe. In the Shia belief, this was just an absolute slaughter. But in any case, Hussein's forces were overwhelmed and Hussein was killed. And the Shia from this point would become really an underground, very persecuted movement. 
some of these names may sound familiar to you, and that's because these are venerated in Shiite culture. The city of Karbala in Iraq is one of the most important shrine cities in Shiism. It's the site of major pilgrimages, and at its center is the Imam Hussein Mosque, commemorating Hussein, who was killed. When the Wahhabi forces took over in Saudi Arabia, which I described earlier, uh, they sacked the city and the mosque. During the sectarian fighting in Iraq that broke out after the U.S. invasion, Karbala became a major center of Sunni-Shia conflict. Beyond that, Hussein was killed on the 10th day of the month of Muharram in the Islamic calendar. The colloquial in Persian and Arabic for 10th is Ashura. Now, you may have heard that name before because Ashura which marks this date is the major commemoration in the Shiite year. I mean, we cannot call it a celebration because it's a commemoration of mourning, of tragedy. You may have seen images of large gatherings of Shiite men whipping themselves to remember the pain of Hussein. Now, in fairness, I have to say that most of the Ashura gatherings use hair whips that don't hurt, and it's basically just a symbolic thing. But, however, you, the ones you do see all over the internet are pictures where this is done with actual whips of leather or metal and people beat themselves until they bleed. Uh, sometimes they also cut their foreheads to draw blood. Again, those pictures get a lot of sensational attention. For most people, this is just a commemoration. And we have to say, in fairness, that this is similar to what goes on in many parts of the Christian world where we have passion plays that reproduce the crucifixion of Christ where they actually nail people to a cross and very often the volunteers die being nailed to this cross. So the idea of portraying this as being something unique to uh, Shiism is not really accurate, but it does point to what an important event this is in Shia memory. And these Ashura commemorations usually involve a reenactment of the Battle of Karbala with someone playing the evil Yazid. And this is sort of like an insult in Shiite culture. You say that someone, well, he'd be a great Yazid for the Ashura because it's easy to believe that this is a bad guy. On occasion, Crowds have gotten so excited that they've actually attacked the actor playing Yazid. But again, that is a rare extreme example. But what is common here is this marks a turning point in the Shia history. Because from this point on, Shiaism is going to become really an underground, very persecuted movement. And this idea of martyrdom, of persecution becomes very dominant in Shiite culture. Remember, it's going to be another three centuries before we have any kind of Shiite government. And so this marks a very definite break between the ruling military power and government and this community of the faithful. And because of that, the role of Sunni and Shia leaders, which we have seen uh, throughout this episode, has been diverging really diverges uh, completely. Because now we have Shia leaders who are not in charge of any territory, they're not in charge of an economy or anything like that, but what they are are community leaders and often for very underground, persecuted communities. And a definite suspicion of government institutions becomes reinforced over this. And remember, compare this to What's going on in the Sunni world? We had this bureaucracy developing with a political leader and then a religious apparatus developing in a very formalized structure. So it really takes an innovation to make something like the Islamic Republic in Iran after the revolution in 1979. But even there, the governing structure was based on this idea of Shia leadership. So Iran does have an elected president, a parliament, and government ministries, things we expect to find in a modern government. But these really have very limited power compared to the supreme guide, who is the senior religious authority, essentially the marja for this Iranian Shia community, and who rules for life. Essentially, this person, who right now is Ali Khamenei, really has a veto power over everything that the elected leadership does. According to the constitution of Iran, 
that supreme guide is the custodian of the Muslim Ummah, meaning the, the Shiite community, until the return of the hidden Imam. So this spiritual concept is embodied in the Constitution. Yet the idea of persecution and suspicion of authorities is still very heavily embedded in the Shia political culture. And this is why, even though Iran is an independent country, the political discourse makes a big point of Iran being a victim of a corrupt world system, which of course is run by America, this idea of the great Satan persecuting them. So even though there's a separate independent country, still this idea of being persecuted by a great power is almost necessary to the system. So we have today America as the great Satan in place of Yazid or Ma'awiyah. You contrast this to a Sunni state uh, like Saudi Arabia, where we have a definite religious establishment, which is usually embodied in a ministry and a political establishment. Okay, now having painted this somewhat gloomy picture of conflict, it's easy to imagine that relations between the Sunni and Shia have always been very bad, and the news media would certainly have us believe this. But if you ask most Muslims, whether Sunni or Shia today, uh, you know, they'll tell you that they get along very well with their neighbors. We can go to communities in Kuwait, for example, uh, where they live side by side, where marriages between the two groups take place. And in some places where the Muslim community is very small, like in the early Muslim communities in America, uh, the two groups would worship together. So the tension, when it does arise, always seems to be involved with political leadership. It's when this begins to mix with the leadership of the state and who's going to be in charge and what sort of authority they're going to have, that's when the tension often breaks out into conflict. So many scholars today consider the Sunni-Shia split to be a political rather than a religious one. It definitely has religious dimensions. It, it affects the religious practices and some of the beliefs. But this idea of politics and governing authority being at the center of this split is definitely real. So it's probably more accurate to say that this is a vision of how religion should shape politics and interact with politics. Well, this Muslim empire that we're talking about in this series essentially will become a Sunni empire for the next three centuries. And that's what we're going to talk about in our next episode. We've entitled this series, When Islam Ruled the World. And next episode, we're going to see how Islam comes to conquer much of the known world, from Spain to the borders of China. Our next episode is on the great Muslim conquests, how they came about, why they succeeded, and most importantly, why they persisted so long. So I hope you'll join us. We'll see you then. Goodbye. Ma salama.